Thank you. Thank you. Um, stay standing. I want to open us in prayer here. Stay standing. First of all, thank you so much for the music. Amen. What a great, what a great worship team you guys have. Praise God for that. Um, it's almost like you knew who you were singing to. I, I always say that, you know, the reason a great love song is so romantic and so inspiring is because you're singing to the person that you love. So these romantic songs that we categorize as praise and worship should be also love songs singing to the one that we love um, because he first loved us. So thank you so much for your heart on the singing. Those of you who participate and practice during the week and you practice and, and do the things to be able to prepare to do that and lead us in worship. Thank you so much. So I work with a team. So we always circle up. Well, this is going to be too big of a group probably to get in a circle. So here's what we're going to do to open in prayer. I'm going to ask that you pound up with your neighbor. This is what a pound looks like, okay? You can hold hands if you're married, okay? But let's just pound up here, okay? We're going to be one big team tonight. And I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we're going to get it on like Donkey Kong, okay? So let me pray for us, and then we're going to have some fun tonight. Um, bow your heads with me. Father, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and your faithfulness. And you thought it was a good idea before the foundation of the world that we would be here tonight. So we are. We find ourselves in a need of not only a reliable, all-sufficient Savior, but a sustaining God to hover above our country, to hover above our ways, to hover above our families, to hover above our jobs, and to excuse us and displace us from our mess. And so, Father, I ask tonight that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, would you take up residency in this place? Would you use your word to honor yourself in a way only you can, because you are about making your name and your story famous for after all it is his story thank you be here tonight thank you so much for these pastors in the heart of missions and ministry and community i feel when i walk in here and sit in this beautiful auditorium we pray in the only name worth praying in his name is jesus and all god's people said okay have a seat have a seat so i have two daughters um i'm married to my best friend her name is Holly. She's what I like to call a righteous fox. She's true Proverbs 31 woman. I'm in the Married Up Club, and uh, I know some of you men may feel the same way out there. You're in the Married Up Club. Raise your hand. Married Up Club. All right. Married Up Club. As far as I'm concerned, men should brag about their wives. You should brag about your wives in public and in private to their face and all over the place because they're dealing with your mess. They do your laundry a lot of times, right? Uh, and, and so you should brag about your wife, and you should be committed because the Married Up Club is the best club to be in. My wife is actually about five foot zero. So I call her a five foot zero righteous fox. Okay. And uh, she's been a blessing. We've been married a little over 10 years. And so she's been a blessing to me. I have two 
precious little girls. My wife's initials were HHH. She was triple H when we got married. So I changed her last initial HH and now it's E. So in order to get back at me, she said, every kid we have is going to have a name H. So I said, okay, that's fair game. I get the married up club. We get kids with the H name. So we're good. So our first daughter, all right, I always say my two daughters, six and three are going to be the first ever girls to win the Miss America pageant in a full body wetsuit. Amen. All right, because they're beautiful, but we're not going to let them wear bathing suits in front of guys. Amen. Or at least that's the plan. We'll see how we go. We're on summer number six. But anyway, so I want to open and set this stage for scripture tonight uh, with a story from my two daughters. So Houston is six and she is the very careful, concerning daughter. Mommy, did you cut the lights off? Mommy, did you blow out the candle? Mommy, is the door locked? Daddy, what time are you going to be home? Daddy, did you win your game? Which, thankfully, we've been able to answer that question sometimes, right? But the idea is, Daddy, are you okay? Daddy, Mommy, are you okay? And so she is very sensitive and concerning, and she's always concerning with the the, the things of the house and, and worried about the dog and the cat uh, and all of the things that we have. But my youngest, not so much. She's rambunctious. We call her Haribo because her mom loved Haribo gummy bears when she was pregnant with her. Her name is Harriet, but we call her Haribo. I'm big into the nickname game, as you can tell. So we call her Haribo. So bedtime in our house, as it is when you have young kids, is is an event. It's an event. It could be televised on some small channels. It could be on Netflix. Bath time, bedtime with the Easterby family could definitely be a legit event that you would probably want to subscribe to, especially after I tell you this story tonight. So my youngest has now realized that she, in order to get credibility, is going to become a tattletale on her sister. Now, I know nobody in here has ever done that to their sibling, amen, right? Nobody would ever do that, and especially not, you wouldn't admit to it in church, right? It's like lying to a preacher is sin square, but lying to a preacher in church is sin factorial, amen, right? So some of you math majors, you follow me. But the point is this, right? So my youngest, she's ready to tattle. Okay, so the other night we're going to bed, we do the bath thing, we got a great dinner full of vegetables, right? We're from the south, right? So we only eat vegetables. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Fried chicken, boiled chicken, all kind of chicken. But anyway, so we we are done with supper and we're finished and my youngest, uh, they're in bed and my wife and I, as you do when you're a young parent, are exhausted and are laying down and, whew, you know, kind of like, okay, all right, tonight's done. Now we can have a little time. And I hear this voice come around the corner, and here's Harriet. She turns the corner, and she says, Daddy, now she's not in our room, okay? She's at the corner of our room. Daddy, Houston didn't brush her teeth. And they said, well, well, Houston, I mean, well, Harriet, you know, we're talking around the corner here. You, you know, you need to worry about Harriet, right? Because we'll let Houston worry about Houston's teeth, right? So she figured, well, that wasn't enough. Well, Houston didn't put on her pull-up. And then she begins to rattle off everything she can think of that Houston did in the last five days to try to garnish my frustration towards Houston so that she could be in the credit business, right? So I often tell my kids, don't be in the credit business. MasterCard and Visa already got that figured out, amen, right? Okay, that's a joke. You'll laugh later, but that's funny. Okay, so anyway, the point is, 
So she begins to rattle off, well, Houston did this, and Houston did this, and Houston ate one too many candies, and Houston's got an attitude, and Houston, and Houston, and Houston. And so finally, we say, all right, Harriet, calm down. And she's around the corner, and then all of a sudden, you hear a voice. And Houston now has gotten up, and she's going to defend herself, amen? She, goes, she, she wants to be her own attorney in the Easterby house. She wants to speak for herself. So she turns around, and she said, Harriet? You need to worry about yourself. You need to go to bed. You talk too much. You tell on other people too much. And you need to understand that when mom says something, you need to do it. You don't need to talk back. You don't need to question. What you need to do is you need to get your little, and then she said, behind, and you need to go to bed. And I'm thinking, what in the world? And they're around the corner, right, while this is all going on. And so they're talking to us around the corner, right? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, really, here's what we got. We got two people blaming it on each other, and neither one of them will really come out and get face to face. But the reality is it's a bunch of distractions, but the goal is going to bed, which is not happening between anybody. So I looked at my wife and I said, she said, well, let's just tell them to go to bed. I said, no, no, no. What we need to do is we need to get them face to face. So we asked them to come around the corner and we begin to talk to them. Obviously, we get the problem down and then they begin to go to bed. But I think sometimes in our spiritual country, sometimes in our country at large, we have people that want to talk about things around the corner. And what they want to do is they talk maybe about each other. And they just want to talk about things hypothetically. In reality, what God is calling us to do is to get face to face. Because the problems are solved at the foot of the cross, face to face with Jesus. One of our themes this year has been face to face. Will you get face to face? Will you look Jesus in his eyes? Will you look to him face to face? Will you seek him? Will you know him? Will you individually evaluate your relationship with him so that you can step further into a deeper, intimate relationship with him? But it's going to require you getting face to face. For scripture tonight, as I prayed about it, I thought, man, we got to have a scripture that's going to require everyone in here and me included to get face to face, to evaluate someone who got Face to face. So there's several times in the Bible, whether it's Old Testament with Moses in the burning bush or whether it's the New Testament with Jesus and Zacchaeus or Jesus in the pool of Bethesda in chapter five of John or Jesus. And you find all of these times where Jesus is coming face to face. And except for the rich young ruler, very rarely does Jesus come face to face with someone and their life not change. And so tonight what I want to do is we get into God's word is I want to ask you the same thing I asked both my daughters. I want you to come around the corner. I want you to put the world, the struggles, of the, 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 the frustrations that you may have that you've come in here with. And I want us to look at a woman who came face to face with Jesus. And because she came face to face with Jesus, her life was never the same. And it's my contention that tonight if you come face to face with Jesus and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you accept that in your heart, that your life, too, could never be the same. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open to John chapter 4. Now, John is uh, obviously one of the preacher's favorite gospels because John is so real in so many ways. Um, he tells the most expansive account 
of these four gospels, right? Um, I always say gospel means good news, right? There is bad news, right? There's lots of bad news. You, you can cut it on about any channel you want and get bad news, right? But this is good news that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for you, to sacrifice on the cross for you. When you didn't deserve heaven, he is going to give you what you didn't deserve, God's riches at Christ's expense. These four stories from these men who walked with Jesus or at least had an eyewitness walking hand with Jesus, whether it's Luke with his friends or Mark with Peter or John, right, himself, right? And then these expansive, expansive count of Matthew we have as this Jewish tax collector. But John is one of Jesus's three closest friends. Peter, James, and John are on his inner three. And I want you to understand this. Because if your best friend or one of your best three friends wrote a book on you, it would be interesting to read one of your best three friends' books about you because he would know a lot about you. He would know your weaknesses, your strengths. He would know what you were thinking. He would know what you would want, right? And so here's John writing a little bit later than the other three Gospels, learning that people are beginning to explain away Jesus, where Jesus is just some miracle worker. He's just some guy who did some tricks in Galilee. He's just some guy who, 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 who some fishermen were hanging out with. And so here's John writing a little bit later with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, like his half-brother James would later do. And he's writing a chip with a chip on his shoulder that Jesus isn't just some miracle worker. He's not just some guy that some fishermen followed. He's the son of God who has come here to pay as an authoritative figure to pay for the sins of the world and to provide a way for us. So he uses phrases like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because the exclusivity of Jesus is a focus of John so that you would not just trust in a miracle worker, genie God, but that you would know an individual God who puts you here for a very specific purpose and obviously sent his son for a very specific purpose. So as John's gospel builds, you see the intentionality of the argument that he is building through starting off with John, this guy being a forerunner of Jesus. And then Jesus in chapter 2 turning water into wine, which is a lot of people's favorite miracle, amen? Right? Don't raise your hand. Jesus and his Jesus. But then you see John explain away this idea of this intellectual challenge that most people will go through through Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and how he comes face to face with a guy who thinks he gets it but doesn't really understand how to get to heaven. So Jesus is going to explain to him, hey, this is how you go to heaven. And John is going to build these arguments because he doesn't want us to explain away Jesus as a rational moral compass or an option to go to heaven. He wants to see Jesus as the gateway to heaven, the pave to heaven, the path to heaven, the door holder, the door, everything that you need to be able to get there. John wants to give the authority to Jesus and not duplicate that authority to the law or any other thing that we read in the Old Testament. So tonight we're going to read about Jesus interacting with a woman who is going to come to interact with a well, who's then going to result in him interacting with his disciples. And I would guess, no matter where you are tonight, that this story will have something to say to you because God's Word is rich like that. It's rich like that. It speaks to me one way as I prepare. It speaks to you differently as you unfold your life. But the reality is God's Word is true. It's living and active. And so it comes true for all of us in our different ways. But I beg you tonight, we're going to work through this story very quickly, but I beg you tonight to wherever you are, listen to the heart 
and listen to the head of Jesus as he stops by a well and he dialogues with a woman and they think they're there for water. But the reality is they're there for life change. One more thing and then I'll read. It's very interesting that in John chapter 2, and nobody preaches this from pulpits, so I just want to give you these themes so you know the power of Scripture. It's very interesting in John chapter 2 that this water is going on, this, this wine is going on in the banquet. And Jesus takes this water and he turns it into wine. The water that they have for the ceremonial washing bins, he takes it into wine. And Nicodemus is talking about birth and he says, hey, it's not just the birth of the water, it's birth of this rebirth that you're going to have. So he makes it, hey, it's even greater than water in chapter 4. And then now in chapter 4, excuse me, of John, he's going to say, hey, you know what? I know you're here for water in this well, but it's not about this water that's in this well. It's about the water I want to put in your heart. And then John in chapter 5, watch this, there's water where a man is by a pool and he wants to be healed and he thinks the pool has the healing. He goes, no, 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 it's not the water is actually me who wants to heal you so here from chapter 2 to chapter 5 people are relegating God's power to water or actions that happen in water and God is saying I want you to know me don't worry about the water know me face to face with me so as you read through your Bible tonight or on your own I would challenge you read John 2 all the way through chapter 5 and look at Jesus pointing to something deeper than just some symbolic action just walking forward or just standing up he's deeper he wants to know you deeply it's not just some action again it's an intimate faith it's an intimate a heartfelt movement of Christ that he wants to do in your life not just some water or some actions that you do one hour a week. So let's look at this, and this will come off the page to us. John, the great, great gospel, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had... I always love when the Bible says Jesus learned. It's, it's only a couple of times, right? Like it, like it was new to him, right? Like it was. Can you imagine being Jesus' third-grade math teacher? Like, she comes in, pop quiz, and he's like, gotcha. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? That's funny. That's funny. Y'all, y'all might not think that's funny, but that's funny right there. Mrs. Jones had trouble up in Jerusalem, amen? She had trouble trying to trick Jesus, but she already had the answers. Okay. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Oh, I love that phrase. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, geographically, we can go into this. It wasn't a geographical loyalty that Jesus had here. Samaria is not in the way. But the scripture says he had to pass through Samaria. It's almost as if Jesus, John is writing this description, knowing what he's going to say. He knows he's going to talk about this woman that Jesus is going to interact with. And he's saying, wait a minute, there's a preoccupation here. It's almost like there's a will that John is revealing that he wants us to know that Jesus was loyal to a will that involved geography. A will that involved 30 years of not doing public ministry and three years that did. 
a will that involves standing before Pilate instead of saying, I am king, taking these stripes because by his stripes would be healed. A will that involved kneeling in Gethsemane and saying, not my will, but your will. It's almost as if John is giving a precursor in John chapter 4 right here that he has a loyalty, an obligation to a greater will. He said he had to pass through Samaria. It's very interesting that the loyalty here of Jesus to this destination in mind. I almost think of Jesus when he's on the cross, carrying the cross to the top of the hill. And as he falls down each time, he, he had to get up because he knew at the top of the Golgotha, the skull and bone, that there was a ransom to be paid for you and I. He's obligated to a will, a, a line, a geography. He's obligated. It's very interesting just... One thing there. He left Judea and again departed for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied that he was from his journey, was sitting beside a well. And there's John proving it wrong again. They say, well, Jesus wasn't really human. He just floated around for 33 years. So you know what John's going to do? He was wearied from his journey because he was human. That's his way of saying your mama. Amen. Right. OK. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. OK. I apologize. OK. Again, now, Jesus, now it's very important to understand the spiritual context here because John is written later than the other Gospels. So these lies about John and the lies about Jesus begin to percolate and begin to permeate the church. They begin to arise and they begin to permeate the church. So Jesus was just a miracle worker. He just floated around. He wasn't really human. So these little sentences that would be a big deal to them, okay? Understand this time and space. So Jesus was wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the wells about the sixth hour. It's middle of the day. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is solo dolo. He's sitting by the well in the middle of the day, the Samaritan woman said to him, oh, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Let me stop right here. Very interesting. I'll save you a lot of Old Testament reading here. The Jews and Samaritans was probably a greater racial class than the racial classes that we know in our country in the 1970s and 60s. It was probably greater because it involved not only the racial class of saying that you look different than me, you, you kind of seem different than me, your skin is different than me, but it also involved heritage of faith. So now not only do you have skin differential or, or I think you look different, I think you are different, you also have the heritage to know that the faith is obligated to one side or the other. You see, the, the hardcore Jews, and this is in Kings, and I'll skip forward for you, but in the book of Kings and also in the book of Chronicles, this, this hardcore group of Jews, when Babylon comes in to take over, there's several Jews, they stay encamped in downtown. They, they don't want to leave, even though they're trying to be displaced, and some Jews do leave. They go outside into this area, they intermarry with these Babylonians, and as they intermarry with these Babylonians and other countries, they begin to be dispersed, and they create what is now known as Samaritans. These Samaritans had intermingled with the people that didn't worship the God of the Old Testament. So now, when Babylon leaves, here comes this new breed of people. you got the old people who've been in church all their life and sit down front. And you got the new people who are coming in in the back. 
And so what the old people do to the new people is say, where you been? I'm giving you the JEV, Jack Easterby version, not available in stores. But the old, the, the people who were dedicated to the Jewish faith, see, they had a temple downtown. They worshiped in and they believed it to be orthodox. They believed for it to be real and they stayed loyal to God no matter what. But these Samaritans, see, they went and intermarried with the other people. And so they turned their back on God as so they saw it. And so Jews were taught to have nothing to do with Samaritans. As a matter of fact, wash your hands when you go through Samaria. The whole idea of dusting off your sandals comes from unclean sand that you would have in your sandals from non-Jewish soil. So Jesus, even speaking to this woman, is taboo. It is not acceptable. It is, it is deeper than a bus boycott, you see. It's stronger than Martin Luther King's sit-ins. It is a conversation between a man in public, a woman in public, who shouldn't be talking not only because it's man and woman, but because it's Jew and Samaritan. There should be no interaction here. At the very least, he should look down on her and she should know what to do. She's there at the middle of the day, which is odd, because in the morning is when women would go out to get their water and their stuff for the day. She's there in the middle of the day, and we'll find out in a minute here because she's embarrassed. She's got some history. She's got some baggage in her life. So she couldn't go with the rest of the women when they would go in the morning. She came at lunch because she probably had been outcasted by them. Jesus stopping to talk to an outcast woman at a well that he has no business talking to. And I ask myself, how many times in my life have I stopped and talked to people that I have no business talking to? How many times have I allowed the prerequisites of this world to classify me so that I'll talk to this person about Jesus, but this person here, I've pre-selected them as my own God. I've pre-selected who can go to heaven and who can't. So I'll stop and talk to this guy because I know that he kind of looks Christian. So he could be in my church. He could fit in my church. He could fit in the fifth row. He could be a deacon. Maybe he could give a big tithe. Oh, man, those guys are great to invite to church, aren't they? Like, hey, man, you want to come to Jesus? How about a check? Amen. And then the reality is we've played God in that circumstance. Because now we've decided who can go to heaven and who can't. And when we're going to share and when we don't. So Jesus kind of gets up in our stuff here and says, hey, I'm going to talk to a woman who I've got no business talking to. Who, if there were people who were spectators, which the Bible doesn't give us, they would all be going, oh, oh no, he didn't. <laughs> but the interaction here is rich. Why? Because Jesus doesn't take your prerequisites and make it a reason for you not to be saved. Praise God for that. Because the preacher dude, he sure wouldn't be up here. Because I'm some dirty has been good to. And the reality is that if we realize the gospel is found in the fact that he would even speak to her. And the fact that he would speak to you in the middle of your mess. And look through the fact that you don't have the prerequisites. And praise God that we don't have seven steps to come to Jesus. But we can come dirty and muddy and nasty. I got to go. We're not even at the good part. That's like cliff notes. Praise God for cliff notes. Anybody in here? Okay. Wouldn't have got through college without them. Praise Jesus. All right. Let's keep going. Verse um, 9. Let's go back to verse 9. 
So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying, you Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. By the way, this doesn't happen too much where Jesus says, Do you know who you're talking to? Doesn't happen too much in Scripture, okay? It's a couple times where it happens. By the way, one of the most funniest things, if you read the Bible close, you will laugh. Because there are several things in the, in the, in, in the, in Scripture that bring laughter, okay? One of my favorite ones that nobody preaches on, I wish I could preach on this like right before Easter every year, right? Is, when Jesus is arrested, you know, Jesus, the whole betrayal thing, right? Kiss on the cheek, boom, going into the garden. Here come the soldiers. They're going to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane. Oh, we, oh, right? Oh, right? And they're like, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Right? And they're like, oh, it's Jesus, you know, boom, boom, boom. Right? Peter cuts off the ear. I'm going to get you. Cuts off the ear, right? And they're arguing, right? And they're arguing, right? Watch this. And then they're like, well, who is it? Well, who is it? And he gets up and he says, hey, go with me. And it says, the soldiers fall to the ground. Right? I mean, you know, we just skim over Scripture like the soldiers fall to the ground. Verse 7. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So the soldiers are coming into the garden, right? Oh, we're going to get you. We're going to get you. We're about to get you, right? And then all of a sudden he goes and they ask, where is this Jesus guy? And he says, ego of me, which is I am, which is the same thing, right? That the Old Testament God says at the burning bush. When he says, what do I say to the people? Who do I say to the people? He says to Moses, tell them I am sent you, right? It's the same thing, by the way. The whole Bible, right? This is a huge story about God. I always say this. The Old Testament is the pep rally. Jesus gets here. It's the game, right? And then we're at the after party right now. Amen. See what I'm saying? Okay, watch this. Watch this, though. So then these soldiers are arresting Jesus. They got their, their, their machetes, right? And they've got their swords. And Jesus says, you come at me at swords and all stuff. And he says, ego in me, I am. So all the soldiers, boom, 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 hit the ground, right? And can you imagine they get back up to arrest him, right? Can you imagine that? Like, hey, man, you know, I mean, like, what? I mean, can you think about it? This plays out like hilarious in your mind. You got, you got to think about this. Like, you can't talk junk after a guy made you fall to the ground and then let you arrest him, right? Like, can you see? I mean, can you see them walking back to the jail? Think about this. Like, I think this is hilarious. I think this is hilarious. Like, let's just call him like, um, like Pookie for a second, okay? Like Pookie the officer, right? He's going back to the jail and he's like, you knew we had you the whole time. Like, like, what, what does he say? What does he say? Like, he was like, I mean, did, hey man, that whole fall to the ground thing, that was a pretty good deal. Like, can we meet tomorrow morning? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know, but the, Jesus is in control. Amen. He's in control of the whole thing. He let them arrest him. He asked them to fall to the ground so they can stand up and then put him in jail so that he can then fall to the ground and then come up and they have to worship him. It's interesting. It's interesting. It's, it's interesting. Right. Just, just some Bible. I mean, just the Bible. It's just the Bible. Just the Bible. Okay. Verse 12. 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And how the well is so deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. I'm going to cut right to the chase on this question. Probably some people in here that have been drinking of the world's water. 
man, this is going to be good. If I can just, if I can just one more check, if I can just get one more thing, one more certification, one more raise, if I could just get my boss to like me a little bit more, if I could just get this friend, if I could just get a wife, if I could just get a husband, if I could just make a little bit more, if I could just have a little bit more, if I could just, if I could just, and you're on team FI. And comparison is the thief of joy and the death of contentment. So the enemy wants you on team FI. So you can put your identity in the world's water that you will be thirsty again as soon as you get done drinking it. So Jesus says, hey, anybody who drinks of that water, you'll be thirsty again in five minutes. But the water I want to give you, it's got, it's got nothing to do with all that. It's actually a well that will spring up in you eternal life. Watch this. He's not done yet. The water I will give you will become a spring in him, welling up of eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me this water. Give us some credit here, sir. Give me this water so I will, be th- I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Or maybe she's lazy, amen. <laughs> maybe she don't want to come back to the well. Sounds good to me. Water fountain at the crib, amen. Right? Let's do it. Verse 16, now this is where Jesus goes deep. You ready? Go, ha- go call your husband, Jesus says, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Busted. (laughs) Right? Like, were you ever getting pulled by a cop, right? Like, you get pulled, you're driving, you're going like 20 over. You know you're guilty, right? And he pulls you down, like, you know, window down, boom, boom, boom. Good evening, officer. What nice biceps you have. Great weather this evening, isn't it, sir? Boy, you sure have a tough job being a police officer. I know I sure couldn't do it. You compliment the guy who knows the truth, amen? She says, boy, I could see you're a prophet. You know my dirt. Isn't it interesting? Jesus isn't scared to get through our dirt. Verse 19, the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And here she talks about her different worship being a Samaritan. The woman said, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that Jerusalem is the place that we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe in me. The hour is coming when you neither worship on this mountain or you will worship the Father. Excuse me, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship, you, meaning Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. She delays it. I know the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, Ego and me, I'm here. I am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled what he was talking, that he was talking to a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? That's the pss, pss of the Christians. Can you believe that he's talking to her? Sinner. Sinner. 
You know the only thing we can't do in heaven? Is evangelize. The people that are there are there because they know Christ. We should spend more time telling others about the hope of Christ. The hope of glory. So the woman left her water jar. Now listen to this for me real quick. Why is she at the well? She's at the well to get water. That's why you go to a well. You see, the very reason why she arrives at the well is to get water. But she leaves the facilitator, the container that she would take the water back with, she leaves it. Because now her mission has been changed. She came to seek water. She's now leaving to seek to tell other people. You see, here's the focus of America that has been shifted that scares the life out of me. When you meet somebody new, and this isn't all bad, but when you meet somebody new within five seconds, what do they say? What do you do? Jack, what do you do? Oh, you do that? Oh, you do that? Whoa, you're cooler than me because of what you do. Oh, you must be smarter than me. You went, you got a master's? Oh, man, you got a master's. You must be here and I must be here. But it's so interesting to me that leaving her water jar, the identity that the world wants you to put your hope in is what you do. Let me just put one more title on my business card. Let me put one more comma by my name. Let me put one more, one more establishment on the neighborhood I live in. And then if I do that, others will respect me. But it's very interesting that the missions that Jesus gives us in scriptures are transitions from a facilitator to bring God glory for you to meet Jesus. The water jar introduces her to Jesus, but it now is just a platform to, for her to go back to her town and tell everybody about this man that she saw. Watch the story. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Now, let's just put it this way because I know we have different levels of age in the audience. We know at least five of the men in the town knew her. Amen? Amen? So she probably faced a little bit of fear here. Go back into a town that knows my sin, into a family who knew my addiction, into a group of Sunday school people who knew I hadn't been in a while, and just say, let me tell you about this man. <laughs> and you know what you do when you get excited, right? How big is the fish? How big is the fish? Let me tell you about this man who, who told me everything. Now, all Jesus talked about was husbands. But there's an excitement it's something about the name Jesus. It's something about the interaction, the face-to-face. -face. See, when you're around the corner, it becomes blaming. Well, we don't like that. We don't go there because of their music. They sing old music. Well, we don't go there because their pastor preaches too long. Well, we don't go there because they do. Well, we don't go there. Well, I don't want to go to church because hypocrites. Well, I don't want to. And they're around the corner. But Jesus is saying, come around the corner. When you come face to face, you leave your water jar and you go into the town and the very same people that know all your sin, you scream out, come see this man who told me everything I ever did. I don't even know where my water jar is, but I know that you need to meet him because he wants to tell you about hope too. And hope has a name. I'm finishing. 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, thinking about this physical stuff. They had just gone into the town to get food. They went out in there to the grocery store. Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Somebody sneak Jesus some fish. Jesus says, my food is to do the will. Uh Uh-oh, I had to go to Samaria. I had to go. My food is to do the will. We came to Samaria, so I'm full. My, my, uh, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Do you not say yet there are four months when I come to the harvest? Look, I tell you, look, listen to this. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now I'm going to skip down. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town had believed in him because of what? The woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. A woman with five husbands, living with a man who's not her husband, just goes to get a drink. She runs into a man named Jesus who says, I'm not concerned with your identity. As many times as you've misplaced it, you've put it in husbands, you've put it in water, you've put it in the fact that you're from Samaria, you put it in how you worship, you put it in the fact of where you worship. But I'm not going to let you be concerned with all that. Because all I want you to do is come face to face with me. I want you to be face to face with me. And I want you to know that I intentionally hung on a cross for you. And today he says this to you. I want you to know I intentionally hung on a cross for you. And to the woman he said, I am he. I'm the one who is going to do what you think or you've heard the Messiah is supposed to do. Can you imagine Jesus on the cross, faces flashing in front of him? You and I, the woman in Samaria, we don't even know her name. The whole town of Sychar comes to know Christ. They come out. Now let me give you the part that stings and I'll close, okay? The disciples went into town. The Christians. Christians. The ones that knew the songs. You know? The ones that sat sat in the front. I have decided to follow Jesus. They know. They sat in the front. They had name tags. Name tags. Hey, welcome. They go in the sidecar. Watch this. And they come back with food. She goes in the sidecar. She comes back with the whole town. Your salvation in Christ, your hope in Christ alone is not just for you. It is for the whole region of this part of Massachusetts. It's for everyone in your family. He's doing a work in you and he's faithful to complete it until Christ Jesus. So the challenge here is what, Jack? I bet if you get face to face, I bet if you leave your water jar and your identities that we so often cling to. I bet if you get quit getting hung up on white and black and how long you've been in church and what kind of church and do you have a this denomination and do you sing from this kind of hymnal and do you do my favorite songs and does the preacher preach my kind of sermons and you take all the me out of it. And you take all the me out of it. And you just say to yourself this, God... 
I'm going to be here 80 to 100 years. And I just want to write an intimate love letter thank you note to you for what you did on the cross of Calvary. I want to write an intimate love letter thank you note back to you. And I want to call it Jack's story for your story, for your glory. I just want to write an intimate thank you note at the end of the day that I could hand you back as an offering to say, you gave me 24 hours today. I gave you my absolute best. And I want to string together a bunch of those days so that at the end of my life, I can get to heaven huffing and puffing as I cross over. I can say, I didn't know if I was going to make it. And there'll be that woman right there. She'll be there. And she'll go, I left my water jar. And the whole crowd of heaven will be much like it was on the stage. People talking to the one they love. Now, I always do this when I close, and I'll do it today. I was overseas with a basketball team uh, a few years ago. And uh, <laughs> I had had some bad food, so my roommates were mad at me, amen? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> had a little visit with the throne, amen, right? <laughs> so we go into uh, the Czech Republic. We're in the Czech Republic. This is with a basketball team um, from the national team, and we're traveling. We get into downtown Czech Republic, and we get there, and Diagonal from my hotel, there's a KFC. So I'm thinking, we do chicken right, amen? <laughs> so I go over there and I said, ma'am, I need every piece of potato wedge, every fried chicken leg you can possibly fit into this bag, into this bucket. I need it right now. Just swipe my card. I don't know how much it's going to be, but my stomach hurts so bad I haven't had American food. And she goes, oh, you're not from around here. <laughs> I said, no, ma'am. <laughs> so I'm from South Carolina originally, but now I live in Massachusetts. She said, oh, oh, is that, do you know LeBron James? No, no, ma'am. So I, I, I don't know, but no. I, yep, I just, oh. She said, oh, okay. She said, oh, okay. You know Mr. Obama? I said, ma'am, I said, ma'am, I just live in America. I don't. She said, oh, oh. She said, and then and she looked back at me. She said, oh, oh, but those are your famous people. You don't know them? I said, no, ma'am. I, I don't know them. I don't, I don't know them. I went back to my room that night, and I thought about this. She was completely miffed at why I didn't know the people that our society exalts. How do you exalt somebody and put them on a platform but not know them personally? She was miffed. And so I thought that night, I said, can we live our lives for a champion that will let us down? Can we live our lives for an identity, a water jar that will fall short of bringing water home? Can we live our lives for a champion that maybe wins a couple years, but at the end just gets older and passes away? Can we live our lives for an identity that has to do with money and cars and toys? Can we live our lives for this chasing after this? Or can we live our lives for an identity and a champion that's bigger than all this? So I always share this poem when I close. And I ask you to listen with your head and your heart because it's my conviction that a lot of people miss heaven by 16 inches. You may know it here, but it never gets here. Poem goes like this. The debate remains aloud to find from the crowd the greatest champion of all time. So let them line up, all holding their cups, determined by their nickels or their dimes. You see, quickly we will see a glorified tree of athletes, politicians, and heroes. They all promote self and bank account wealth. It's a competition that revolves around zeros. But I dare to say the greatest champion of today is one who's been forgotten by most. 
He's value to a few who sit in the pew. He was announced by the heavenly host. He was born in a stable to show that he's able to serve and lead at all costs. He seeks and he feeds the deepest of needs of anyone who confesses, I'm lost. He fed, he healed, in Gethsemane he kneeled to earn his ultimate crown. Accused by a crowd, blasphemy, out loud. To a cross they thought his kingdom would come down. For three hours he hung. Six hours he hung. No national anthem was sung. No ESPN coverage was given to his game. Alone he competed until your sin he defeated. The king of Jews was what they called him by name. You see, the champion was graved by one he had saved. Never to be heard from again. But after three days... The stone was away. And the locker room, it was emptied with sin. The greatest champion, he rose. And he preached love that flows to his disciples and any of us who will listen. He preached no banner or ring or perishable thing. He preached about home with streets that are going to glisten. The greatest champion, he's Jesus Christ. And he paid full in price for all that call on his name. And the way that he walked, the way that he talked, he mastered this life and all of its silly games. So let's hear a cheer. The greatest champion, he's in here. He said he would never forsake. He has all the reasons, friends. He named every season. He's the greatest champion. Let us make no mistake. What happens when you get face to face with the greatest champion? What happens at your well? What happens at your pool of Bethesda? What happens at your night meeting like Nicodemus? What happens at your burning bush? What happens at your time that you get face to face with Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'll leave my water jar. Jesus, I'll leave my Pharisee status. Jesus, I'll leave what others think of me. I'll leave my if eyes. I'll leave my identities and my name tags and all of the things the world wants to stamp on me. And I'll say that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Is that your equation tonight? Is that your equation tonight? Not a bunch of bells, not a bunch of whistles. Just a bald guy from South Carolina who is desperately hoping that people in here and all over this great country and this great world fall intimately in love with the greatest champion. Let's pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, just so thankful tonight, so thankful. And there's people in here tonight who just need time to talk to God. Father, we, we don't desire emotional responses or checking boxes that make others feel better about ourselves or make us feel better or make us feel like we've done something that really hasn't been done. Tonight, we want genuine conversion. We want you to come in and wreck shop on our life, to change us, mold us, make us into the man or woman you want us to be so that we can leave the water jar that we think brought us there. Father, I'm desperately crying out to you that you raise up a people at a church like this with these amazing leaders and this amazing pastor, that you would just raise up people to be authentically in love with you. Authentically means real. It means we don't put on a mask. And Father, it's my suspicion, my, my fear, if I'm real, that the devil is masking Christians so that we can't sing this little light of mine. I want to let it shine. Father, a woman at a well. Come see this man who tells me everything about myself. And we finish the sentence. Come see this man who did everything 
about my mess. Just a second by yourself at your chair without distraction, without being disturbed.